0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. We don't have time today for the normal intro. We've got to get started. We've got a cram-packed show. In a few minutes, we will introduce one of the most touching stories that you will ever hear, Shannon Walker is with battle buddies. They are service animals, and she will tell us her amazing entrepreneurial story. But first up today, we have Rose Fass. She was the Xerox chief transformation officer during the time that they moved from being a copier company to the document solution company. She now runs fast forward, an amazing consulting company. Rose Fass. Welcome to the show. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm well, I'm well. Thank you so much for being here. You know, Rose, we're at the beginning of the year. I'm still writing 23 on the checks. I'm still writing checks, Rose. Isn't that embarrassing if I'm still putting 23 on them?
1: My, my husband writes them too. That's okay.
0: All right, thank you. Uh, what are you excited about in the new year? What makes you excited for 24?
1: We uh, we actually put a succession in place. Um, you mentioned that I was at Xerox, and you were correct. And I left Xerox to go to Gartner um, in 2000 with Bill McDermott, who's now the CEO of ServiceNow, prior SAP. And uh, I met a classically trained engineer there, and I was a general, you know, general manager with PL and L responsibility. Uh, and he and I started the company 22 years ago. At that point, um, I was in my early 50s. And this 2024, we have two co-CEOs, a guy who spent 20 years on Wall Street, who's in his 40s, and uh, Gavin, who's in his 50s. And they are going to be taking on the day-to-day of the company. And I am uh, founder and chairman and going to be doing a lot of Uh, speaking engagements, and working with uh, C-suite leaders that want to up their game. So I'm excited about 2024, about Fast Forward's legacy, and where we go from here.
0: All right. C-suite leaders and how to up their game. Explain. What is their game lacking? What would you work with them on? What do you normally see as the big issue?
1: Yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the leadership gap and all you have to do is watch the news and see our government officials in action and you can identify it for yourself. I think today, business leaders wear a different mantle. They have a lot more to cope with because they've got people coming to work looking for what they cannot find in their public institutions. They're trying to look for a purpose Um, understanding that they can actually live out their own dreams and that there is some sort of calm in the midst of all this chaos and turbulence that they're faced with every day. Those were not the issues we faced early days as leaders. They are the issues people are facing today. And they've just come off of an unprecedented pandemic. Um, All of the situations around what's going on in the culture uh, with different ethnicities, genders, changes. And I think at this juncture, if you're a C-suite leader, you got to kind of take that all on. And you still have to perform, and you still have to give uh, the shareholders what they're asking for, but you have to provide some stakeholder value as well. So I think that there is a lot going on today, and upping your game means you can't just manage the business anymore You have to lead people through these rough waters globally, as well as here in the States.
0: Rose, are we at an inflection point with woke and businesses trying to be DEI too much? Perhaps, uh, we had, uh, right. I don't know if you remember right before the holidays, or as part of the holidays, we had the MIT, UPenn, Harvard presidents getting a little bit in trouble when they went to Capitol Hill and they were evasive, some would say. And that led to one of their resignations, I think at least. Uh, Are we getting to any point where CEOs are having to play the game a little differently now?
1: Yeah, I think we need to step back and think about common sense. I think we've over-indexed on all of these subcultures. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging and accepting people from all different walks of life. We should do that. We're a diverse culture. We're a melting pot. We always have been in the U.S., but spending all of our time... Focusing on that versus just looking at everyone that's in the population, everyone that's trying to figure out what their career paths are, how the com- where the company wants to go eventually. I mean, you start out with diversity and inclusion in the same way they had affirmative action when I was younger, which is to kind of force what normally wouldn't happen organically. And then once it starts to happen, we need to pull back and we don't need heads of diversity and inclusion. We need to have it be woven into the culture and CEOs who create a open environment for whomever is there to participate without necessarily going overboard to your point.
0: Do you think that the pendulum will swing back?
1: I think it has no choice. I mean, we've been through these things in other uh, situations. I remember years ago um, when I was in school and, you know, Martin Luther King had been assassinated and things were really, really tough. And I remember being on odd and even gas lines and all kinds of things that companies faced. Today, we're going through hybrid environments where people work remotely they're trying to find connection even though they want to work remotely um companies are trying to figure out what do we do with all this office space that we have how do we bring people together in a purposeful way Um, there's a lot that's going on there is a tremendous amount going on and all of which has to be filtered through a leadership lens that says, what are the key things I need to focus on? One, that I get my people feeling happy to be here and performing, productive and willing. And two, how do I make sure that the purpose we have and what we stand for appeals to the customer base that we're going after? So there's a lot at stake here. Purpose and performance, are inextricably linked and leaders have to find the balance there and spending too much time on these cultural issues and and not giving the balance to all of it i think is really is really hurting us
0: do you think we should be back at the office would you let your employees stay home five days a week two days whatever yes
1: we we have a very uh loose schedule we we have the office opened three days a week for anyone who wants to come in and the idea is the 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 previous off-site gym has now become the on-site so if there's a reason for you oh, to be wow, in the office, that's
0: interesting yeah that's a line. we'll tweet that one out rose i haven't yeah. heard that before
1: yeah, it's great because people can come into the office, gather together around a specific, you know, creative thing they want to do, whiteboarding, whatever. And it's it's great. There's no reason to sit in a commute to be on Zoom or to sit in front of your computer all day. If you're going to do that, you may as well do it at home. And I think it's given people a lot of flexibility. And it provides stay-at-home uh, children, you know, who are either, you know, babies or, you know, coming home from school, whatever the case, families who have kids, they can work around that schedule. And I think people appreciate that flexibility. So coming to the office, there should be a reason to come to the office. And that's what we're kind of doing. And for those people who just want to get out of the house, they don't have a family. They're all by themselves. I've heard single people say, I just like coming to the office because I can be with right. other people. Yeah
0: what's the solution there
1: yeah and that's why we we leave the office open three so days you want a week we'll yeah, three days wait, right yeah. you want to come you come
0: tell me about the book the leadership conversation make bold change one conversation at a time
1: i do believe that our job today is to really consider the conversations we're having i think the conversation we're having with ourselves and then the conversation that we're having with others. Um, I believe that leadership happens in the conversation. It doesn't happen in spreadsheets and it doesn't happen over a PowerPoint review. It happens in the conversation around that review. It's a text message that goes out to somebody in a way that says, you rock. It's a, um, an interaction that happens in the hallway um, or someone picks up uh, a phone and calls you and you're willing to think about what you're saying before you just fly it out. Um, So I do believe that bold, bold change happens one conversation at a time and that we need to have leadership conversations where people feel guided, things get translated, it's not enough to communicate, they understand where the company is going, how they fit into the picture, where their futures are, and if they're aligned with the company's future.
0: And it all comes back to chocolate.
1: Well, the chocolate conversation was an interesting one for me. I had attended a chocolate party in college. It was a BYOC, bring your own chocolate. And I made my killer chocolate cake. And I thought this will be so much more fun than going to your typical, bring your booze. And I got there and there was a table laden with the most exquisite confections I've ever seen. And I realized that I was pretty ordinary um, I was walking around and I recognized one guy came up to me and he said, uh, are you like very snobby about chocolate or are you good if we just had a Snickers? I said, I'd be good with just a Snickers. And this woman came by and she was pin And she looked over and she said, oh, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate unless it has a certain percentage of Keiko. Long story short, I walked out of there and I realized that at the chocolate level, we all had something in common. We all loved chocolate, but we had different standards. And from those standards emerged concerns. In this woman's case, her concern was a cheap bar of chocolate would never cut the mustard. Years later, I was in a big all-company strategy meeting at Xerox, and the move, as you put it earlier, from what was the copier company to the document company, um, and no one understood what that meant, Jim. And so they put this big strategy out, and I realized as people were walking out and interpreting, everybody had a different interpretation. Everybody had different standards and then the concerns started popping up about how are we going to make this happen? What do we do differently? What do we tell our customers? So I said to myself, we're having a chocolate conversation. And that kind of became a metaphor with all of our clients whenever they were talking past each other and felt they were on the same page. What I ultimately came up with is when you start with the concern, and I think Zelensky did this beautifully when the Ukrainian war first broke out. He basically thanked everyone for wanting to help him by giving him a way to come out of the Ukraine. But he said, I don't need a ride, I need weapons. I wanna take care of my country. He was dealing with the concern. He set a new standard for the way a leader would handle that kind of invasion. And he literally, through his conversations, changed people's worldviews. That's an extraordinary gift. Stephen Jobs had it. You know, he knew that people were in a world where things were really tough, and he brought about the iPod. You and I never thought that we would go to bed at night losing sleep over not having a thousand songs in our pocket, but he figured it out, and he addressed a concern that ultimately changed the standard in the industry for how we listen to music, and... Created a whole new worldview, a common worldview. So I look at it as though uncoupling a chocolate conversation happens bottom-up. Address the concern, deal with multiple different standards, and try to figure out where you can have some shared space and create a common worldview.
0: Excellent. Wow, we went a long way in that one, Rose. That was great. I, though, lost uh, the conversation that Zelensky came back too many times for the chocolate. I thought, anyway, that's, I don't want to go there. Let's forget that. Forget say that. it again.
1: No, uh, say it again.
0: Uh, that Zelensky came back too many times. The, the story, uh, the conversation for me, I don't know. I just don't want to get political here. Uh, I came back too many times. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, Isn't it all about the story? Let's go back to the, the entrepreneurship part of this, not the political part. It's about the story, isn't it? Isn't everything about the story?
1: It is. And people have a narrative in their brains and the stories that they are buying into and it's, it's astounding to me in a world where we have some really smart, smart people, how they just buy into a particular opinion or point of view without thinking it through and assessing it against their own set of principles and uh, values and ideas. Um, I'm kind of stunned by it. And I think what happens in corporations is people want to be—they um, want to be accepted. They want to be part of what is happening in a corporation, um, and they and they you, trying to be an entrepreneur in a Fortune five hundred, Fortune one hundred, Fortune thousand company is very difficult. It's very difficult, and I think that's why people who are born to be entrepreneurs, Jim, come out of that and decide, I need to do this on my own. I need to do this.
0: They never get hired in the first place, as Coca-Cola did to me. Rose, I put together a plan as an intern in Coca-Cola, Japan, that saved them $100 million and still couldn't get a long-term job there. Because they said I should go off and be an entrepreneur and that I didn't fit the mold. And so... Even a hundred million dollar buy-in, I couldn't get a job.
1: Right, right. And the mold, unfortunately, is no longer working. I I have a very dear friend who's a a client of mine and she's phenomenal. And she said something the other day that I really loved. It was one of those drop the mic moments. She said, you know, I'm part of HR and people want to really, really cling to policy and procedures and she said, today we have to bend the rules. We, we don't, we don't wanna break them, but we do need to bend them. And that's not an ethical dilemma, that's an intellectual dilemma. And I thought, I love it, I love it. That ending for me was so right on the money because we'd like to view it as an ethical dilemma and it's not, we make these things up bending the rules coloring outside the lines that is the way you find innovation that's the way you find your way through a conversation and you change that conversation and you turn something that was perhaps going down a particular path where you've worn out the the uh, the fabric and the rug and you need to do something different and it's an intellectual dilemma. Can I take the risk? Am I willing to? So Coca-Cola, in your case, wasn't. They saw the mold as what they wanted to embrace, unfortunately. Rose, walk us
0: through a little bit of the Xerox story as you know, they came pretty close to... Oblivion there and were able to change the fundamental DNA of the company. And you were there leading that. Tell us a little bit about those years.
1: Yeah. To be honest with you, Jim, I'm going to be very vulnerable here. While I did all I could do with Ann Mulcahy and a few other people, Pat Wellington and John Seeley Brown, who's over at the Aspen Institute, to turn things around, it was very difficult for the company to make the shift that needed to be made. That was one of the key reasons why I, along with Bill McDermott, finally left and went to Gartner. Um, We we did work through it um, and tried to make enough of a change to at least bring the company back financially to make it more solvent. But there was almost a reverse integration that took place because the company that Xerox acquired became sort of, even though Xerox is the brand became the sort of foundation for what that company was all about, which became process and it's now a former, you know, very, very small version of itself. When I started with Xerox, it was $1,000 a share. Um, it's now in Norwalk. Much smaller offices. Much different clientele. Works through value-added resellers. Doesn't have their own sales force. A lot changed. A lot changed. But early years, I enjoyed it because I had the opportunity to operate as an entrepreneur. I started my career as an entrepreneur, and I, I got to end it that way. Um, And that's being able to bring ideas to life that you normally can't do in a corporation. And so a lot of what I did during those times of transformation when we were really kind of moving things along was I got people to think differently about the way in which they collaborated, how we could work across functions, how we could integrate PARC more into the day-to-day business, Palo Alto research, um, just a number of things along those lines. But to tell you that it was an immense success, I would say we made some real strides, but we were not able to fundamentally change.
0: You, you brought up Park... And the Palo Alto research center right there underneath Stanford, it seems back the back door of Stanford is we always described it. I used to run summer camps, Rose at Stanford back in the 90s. And so, uh, I know the area a little bit, uh, I know where you can go buy 500 hamburgers in one day if you have, Uh, uh, but you know, the story is, and I think that this is sort of. The way history is, if you watch the movies and everything, and by the movies, I mean, you know, the the Pirates of Silicon Valley and places like that, that a hundred years from now, the story will be that Xerox had everything at park. Uh, If they had done it right, they would be Apple and Google combined.
1: 100 percent and we couldn't get him there um every time we tried to monetize whatever was going on in park the old guard resisted it was not dissimilar to your story about coca-cola and the mold it's very hard for people to move past their lived experience and john tried but then steve jobs came along and Took what he could take and Park had it all. We invented it all. The U-E, everything.
0: There's that great scene. I don't know if you've seen the movies, but there's the one scene where they're shuffling Bill Gates out so that they can bring Steve Jobs in. Do you remember that? Did you see that?
1: I, I do. I do.
0: Is, that, is I there do. any reality to that or is that just yeah, good there
1: movie is reality there yeah, there is reality there. And they both were Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were arch enemies. and then they realized they needed each other. so they both ended up on stage at one point and pulled pulled together. Um, but yes, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on. And you know, we had some of the smartest scientists, social scientists and engineers in the world at Park. Um, and they just, for whatever it was worth, they couldn't get their arms around how we could mainstream the innovation.
0: Rose, what are you the most excited about right now uh, in terms of, you know, I'm not talking huge macro stuff necessarily, but what are you the most excited about? What's keeping you awake at night because you're excited to think about it?
1: Well, I think I'm thinking legacy right now, and I'm excited about where this company is going. Um, We've built an amazing um, business, and we've been self-funded the entire time, never had to take a round of financing. We have um, incredibly talented artists that do a lot of the illustrative work for us. We have a fabulous offering around storytelling that's remarkable. We have leadership methods and tools that, frankly, are really hands-on, practical, Jim. Anybody can use them, and they are, they are just tried and true. Um, We have a lot of proprietary stuff. I'm proud of what we've done and what we're doing going forward. We have a particular strategy right now that we really want to maintain six core accounts that we go very deep with. Um, They're in the Fortune 100s. Um, That we can grow the business through those core accounts. And we will have other accounts that we do business with, but they won't necessarily be resourced as heavily as these six core accounts um so i think that's been a really good shift in our thinking when we first started we were like yes to everything we're being really choosy we have three values that i love be choosy build a reputation touch a client every day and don't compromise on the deliverable and we live by it
0: we want Who's us- your ideal client, Rose? How big? How small?
1: Uh, we really do have large global accounts, very large global accounts, Fortune 100. Yeah, okay. for the most part, yes. And uh, and what's interesting is they love the entrepreneurial spirit that we bring, but we're all we're all corporate brats. Every one of us grew up in corporate. So we know how to navigate those systems and at the same time, bring a fresh perspective.
0: Perfect. And will it survive the transition?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Right now, we've got the two guys. We've got a wonderful staff that is coming up right behind them. And no question. They will survive the transition. Gavin's going to be there for the next nine years. So that's going to be great. And he started the company with me. Uh, David Frost, who heads up our coaching practice and is one of our co-CEOs with Gavin. Just a fabulous guy. Extremely outstanding financial acumen, but extraordinary people person, which is highly unusual to find those things together. So... um, I'm, I'm excited about where we're going. I have a very diverse workforce too. And it came about naturally. We didn't go out looking for it. We have a, a design studio. Um, and we have an art director who's Chinese, who grew up in an incredibly modest family, has an amazing work ethic. Uh, we have a Brit in that organization and a, a young woman from Korea who's one of the best illustrators. And... Um, we have women of color, Um, we have incredible, um, incredible talent that comes from people who all share one common value, and that's an extremely strong work ethic and a willingness to do whatever it takes.
0: Rose, how do we find out more follow online, get a copy of the book?
1: Um, you can go to fastforward.com. You can go to me on LinkedIn, uh, Rose fast, um, on LinkedIn. And I didn't get to your 10 questions.
0: We do that different separate. Oh, okay. So we have to say goodbye and then we'll say hello again. Okay. So Rose, thank you for being on the show. And for those of you who don't know what the quick 10 is, you will find out later. Thanks a lot, Rose. Thank you. And we will be right back. We are back. We are going to hold Rose's quick 10, despite what we just said for another day. Sorry, we, are, we need to move on. Boy, is this next story going to warm your heart. I am very excited to introduce Shannon Walker to the show. She is the founder and CEO of Northwest Battle Buddies. Battle Buddies are the dogs that she provides for United States service Uh, veterans and people who are suffering from PTSD and other situations. Her father was a veteran, and her passion has become helping veterans. She's been doing this since 1997 when she started dog training. Shannon Walker, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Thank you so much, Jim, for having me on the show. I'm doing fantastic. Happy about the new year.
0: Yes, me too. Uh, I feel like you're the type of person, I don't even need to ask any questions. If I wind you up and go, you're just going to go. Tell us about Battle Buddies, why it started, what your cause is, who you're helping. Go. I'll Uh check back in in about 20 minutes, Okay. (laughs)
2: You got it. Uh, Well, my name is Shannon Walker and I've been a a dog trainer, professional trainer for about 30 years. And as you said it, you know, my dad did serve in the military and he taught me to believe in God, family, and country. And when you're in the presence of a veteran, you're in the presence of a hero, even though he never considered himself one. So being a dog trainer um, for, I have a for-profit business. And when I had a veteran come into my business, you know, about 12 years ago, He got my attention. He brought in his personal dog. He wanted her to be trained to be a service dog. And so I did what I do. I had trained service dogs before, but I had never served a veteran or trained a dog for PTSD. So I did what I do. I looked at the dog. She had temperament enough. She was young enough. And then... I, he left her with me and I trained her for many, many months and trained her to task her PTSD. And when he came in to train with me, because I can train the dogs all day long, but what really matters is what they do for the veterans or the the vet or the the owners that I train the dogs for. And when we went out to start training the dog, that is where it changed for me. I saw him, not, not only did I learn about the suicide rate amongst our American heroes, And I I learned about his triggers, and I learned about what was limiting him in his life. He had been self medicating for over a year. By the time I met met him, he was clean, had been clean and sober for quite a while. But prior to that, he'd been self medicating. He'd been struggling. In his last firefight in the military, he you know, lost, you know, a lot of um, men, you know, from his unit. But even after coming home, this is what was very profound to me. When he came home, after serving our country on American soil, six of the people that had survived that firefight with him had committed suicide here at home. So even though, you know, they weren't in battle anymore, they were still paying a price for my freedom. And when we went out and started to train, and I was learning about all this, I saw Kevin find courage inside himself to go places he was afraid to go alone. And I saw him do for his dog what he was not willing to do for himself. And I, it was so profound to me. It was so profound to me. And when we were finishing his training and he was getting ready to walk away with a service dog at the very, very end of everything that he needed to learn, I'd accomplished a lot of things in the dog world. I had competed internationally. I'd done a lot of things, but there was nothing that compared to this moment when I was watching Kevin walk away. I was watching him walk away with his head high and his shoulders back. And I significantly felt like I'd made the difference in the life, in the quality of somebody's life. And you fast forward a few weeks and he had gone to the VA and now he had a service dog because he was heavily involved in other support as well. And the veterans that knew him prior to the service dog. But I mean, prior to having his service dog, Sammy, they saw the change in him and they came to my business looking for help. And I didn't have, they wanted dogs and I didn't have dogs to get them. And these were American heroes that served our country, that were still paying a price with invisible wounds of war. And they were looking for a way to sustain and to survive. And I didn't have a way to help them. And then in my simple-minded thinking, I thought, if I can just adopt dogs out of shelters, I can gift them and I can say, thank you for my freedom. And that's exactly what I did. I went right out to local animal shelter. I developed some relationship with them. They checked me out business-wise and I walked out with five dogs for free and I got started. And my dad always said, you don't know what you don't know. And um, thank God I didn't know how hard it would be to start Northwest Battle Buddies and and just raise and, and build a 501c3. But that was... 12 years ago that Northwest Battle Blaze was founded, 224 service dogs ago that we have gifted, professionally trained and gifted, and we have not lost one veteran to suicide. The suicide rate amongst our American heroes is 22 veterans a day. And out of all the veterans that we've provided service dogs for, they are living life better. They are better fathers. They are better mothers and sons and daughters. And it's just been an honor to be able to do what I do. And I tell people, I get to do this because it truly is life-changing. And the bottom line is, is that I wanted to say thank you for my freedom. And that is exactly what we do. And, um, it's, and it's just an honor. To, it's an honor.
0: Wow. Amazing story, Shannon, amazing statistics. Uh, you are also a hero. Uh, I have a bunch of follow-up questions, but <laughs> I want to set the stage. Our long-term listeners know that I hate dogs. I, i had the world's worst dog story ever as a child and i tell people that and they're like okay well tell me the story and i'm like no you don't understand it's the worst story ever (laughs) if i tell you the story you will hate me for telling you the story and they're like no now i have to hear the story i'm like you don't understand this is the worst story ever and then i tell the story after they badger me and then they go, why did you tell me that? You're a horrible person. So anyway, it's that (laughs) level of trauma that I dealt with as a child, as with a dog. And then of course, the way God loves to play with us, Shannon, what does he make happen Mm -hmm. in my life? Of course, I fall in love with a massive dog lover. Right. And so that's uh, awesome. We're we're getting married (laughs) and right before she puts, uh, right. I don't know. Four or five months before we get married uh her long term companion dog has to be put down, and she um, says you know i'm when I move in with you, I'm bringing a dog, you know, so what we decided to do was uh the dog moved in three months before she did as a puppy brand new puppy <laughs> came directly to my house, and of course, you know what happened. I would rather yeah. you know have the puppy <laughs> than the than any the wife or the kids or any you know the The puppy is, or that dog became, uh, you know, my closest companion for, for years. Uh, unfortunately he has passed or she has passed, uh, let me digress upon my digressions. Uh, Shannon, just to get this off the table as well. I've had a lot of PETA guests on the show and they have certified that we have the best names uh the best pet names in the world it's PETA certified do you want to you want to hear what they are
2: yes i do jim please tell me (laughs) so our last
0: name is beach right and so the possibilities with that are endless the dog i was telling you about was sunny beach we now have a (laughs) wavy we have uh uh ripley or ripples Mm -hmm. Uh, we have cats coco and tiki like in tiki hut but anyway, yeah. PETA certified awesome. names. And Shannon, all I I'm rambling on to get to this point. I I get it. I get it. Yeah. Pets yeah. make a difference. They make life yeah. better. They know. Yeah. They are smart. They're intuitive. All of my pets know when I'm having a bad day, and one of them is yep. sent to comfort me. I, I don't know if they have a lottery yeah. system over in the bathroom or whatever, but they know yeah. someone comes and comforts me. Uh yep. it's unbelievable. So I so, so get it. Uh absolutely.
2: So what absolutely. You're doing well, you is
0: know five hundred you said well, over five hundred <laughs> dogs?
2: No, no, two hundred and twenty-four. We've gifted two hundred and twenty-four service dogs. We train these dogs for five months, and then the veterans come from across the nation and train for five weeks, and then they pass their testing, and then we gift them. So it takes some time to do that. But yeah, in twelve months. But you know what? We are not stopping. I mean, we are just uh, going stronger than ever, and you know, just we have we have a tremendous waiting list. We have a waiting list of veterans waiting for over a year and a half. And, and, and uh, lassie dogs. <laughs> They are not Lassie dogs. They are, you know, we do take dogs out of shelters, but we also take dogs. We have a breeding program as well. We have English labs that are very common. We have English cream golden retrievers. We use Australian Labradoodles. And then we'll use the mixed breeds that come along. You know, a lot of people will call us and they'll say, hey, you know, for whatever reason, they have a dog that's young and of temperament and healthy and they, you know, we can't keep our dog anymore and I we're going to take it to the shelter. So can you take it instead? And if we, if it, if it works in our pipeline and it's the good timing then we will take that dog in and and save that dog from going into the system. And so, you know, it, it is amazing. You were talking about, you know, when the dogs, because they feel us. And so when our veterans are, you know, our, our dogs, they, they'll stop panic attacks and, and help interrupt flashbacks. They wake our veterans up from nightmares. Our veterans use these dogs as a tool. So even though they might feel an emotional need, of course, because who doesn't have a pet or a dog and they feel you and they come to your aid when you're distressed or upset. But then also, you know, our dogs, are, you know, we have veterans that will walk through a mall for the first time in 12 years um, with a service dog at his side. We have veterans that are going out with their children and and experiencing life with their children. You know, one of my employees, actually, his parents each have a service dog because they both serve. So they each have their own service dog. And he says, my dad took me to my first ball game after he got his dog, And, um, you know, it's just, it's incredible because we aren't just talking about the veterans. We are talking about the families. We're talking about the community. We want these, you know, these fathers and mothers, they want to live with their children and experience the memories, not hear about them. They want to be a part of it. And so it really is about making the community healthier as a whole. And it's a very holistic way to do it that is incredibly impactful and working. And, you know, the stories don't just, they just don't stop. If I can, can I tell a quick story, uh,
0: radio is about stories. Shannon, that's what we're here for. Right. Tell us a story. Alrighty.
2: So I had I had one veteran. He looked like Santa Claus. And just to be quick about it, uh, we, we have a five-week program, and it's we're about week three, and I'm just giving my, my speech, because, you know, like you said, I can talk, and I can just keep on going without taking a breath, so I make it easy for my interviewer. But um, I was sitting there talking right before we were getting ready to go out, and I saw a physical reaction in this veteran, and like he was distressed. So I when I finished up what I was saying, I went and checked in with him. I'm like, man, are you good? Are you all right? He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I said, Did I say something wrong? Because I was busy checking myself. And and he's like, No, you said everything right, but he didn't want to talk about it. So we go to the we go to public and you know, we go to the to town and we do, we make our training and everything else, and then he wants to speak with me afterwards. And so we go privately and he said, you know, I got to tell you what was going on with me. And I said, okay. And so we gave him, a, it was a rescue uh, named Flame, German shepherd dog mix. And he says, you know, when I was standing there in line this morning, what you don't know about me is that, cause he's grandpa, father, everything, you know, he's got his grandkids and actually plays Santa, it's plays Santa at Christmas, but yet was having suicidal thoughts every day. He said, what you don't know about me is every day in the shower, he had suicide attempt before.'" And he said, I know now I have a plan to commit suicide. He goes, if I, if I do, I know where it's going to be. I know who's going to find me. I know what time of day and I will not fail. And I spend every morning letting the shower run cold, making a decision if I'm going to do one more day. He says, that has been my life for years, every day. But when you, I was, when you were talking this morning, what I realized is since I met Flame three weeks ago, I haven't had one, a morning like that. I have not had suicidal ideations. So then you fast forward wow. a couple months. Now, now he's graduated with his dog. He's at home, and then I hear him. He, he you know, because our veterans will report to us about what their dogs are doing. You know, we stay very close with our veterans even after the fact. Um, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of a processes because we are a family. But fast forward a couple months, and he's in the shower. Flame is in the shower, not in the shower, but in the bathroom. The dogs go everywhere with them, and he says he's having one of those mornings. And he didn't even realize it until flame. So he's in the shower and flame starts whining and whining and sticking her head in the shower and whining. And he's like, and it got his attention. But he was, what he didn't realize is he was caught up in his head having suicidal ideations again. And he didn't realize it until she interrupted it. And they sense that. The dogs, they, they they alert on the adrenaline. They feel us. And the thing is about these dogs, not only you know, you know, they go into the, the, the you know, our veterans can navigate life better, they can go places they've never gone, they can get up, they're out, they're living healthier lives. But the bottom line is this: our service dogs are there for our veterans in the midnight hour when nobody else is. It is when our veterans are alone that they are having these you know it's not all of them but a lot of them these suicidal ideations are they're having these moments that our dogs are rescuing them out of just so they can tell us one other quick story we had a veteran in the midnight hour who he said he puts it this way my broken brain brain decided to end it and he's sitting on the floor he decided to give up he had a box cutter and he was going to end his life and as he's sitting there crying uncontrollably his dog interrupts him and is pawing and pawing and pawing at him. And it breaks him out of the moment. And he said, so what I, I woke up in the morning to a picture of an expression on a dog's face that I had never seen. I've trained thousands of dogs. I've worked with the police. I've compa- I've done all kinds of things. And when I opened my phone and I saw this picture, I saw an expression on a dog's face I had never seen. And in, in his, in that broken moment in the middle of the night, instead of reaching for the box cutter he reached for his phone to capture his service dog talon's face as he was stopping that moment and he says i'm waking up and enjoying another sunrise because talon was there and it's like how do you put a price on that how do you put a price on a life invisible wounds of war Our veterans they're, they're not living life. They are taking their life. They are living in a small world that is isolated, and they're never going to ask for help. They're not going to tell you, and we have to convince them to take a service dog because they don't want to take a dog from another brother or sister in arms, and so we have to tell them. I tell them, it's like, man, if you're in front of me, this is your time. And you need to run with it and you be the hope that another veteran is looking for. You be the answer and you be, because you are our mission walking. You're our mission in action out there and go be the example and bring hope to another American hero. And, um, and they do, they, they speak for us. They do interviews for us. We have veterans that walk in scared to death on day one of our week five of the veteran training. They're scared to death. They can't hardly look you in the eye. They're emotional. They're crying. And then you look at the transformation that five weeks happens of them being with their dog, being out in public, learning skills, learning to do life differently. And now at graduation, they could be standing there with a microphone in their hand, talking to a hundred people, telling them about how this service dog has already impacted their life and what their, and what their hope is for the future. It's an unbelievable transformation. And uh, it's fuel in, in my fire. And I have an amazing team um, that we have built at Northwest Battle Buddies. And I'm so grateful to, to platforms like this. And thank you for giving us the opportunity, Jim, to share our story. Because never ask for help. And so we have to tell their story. Because the American heroes that love their freedom and the men and women that provided it, this gives other... Americans an opportunity to lock arms with us, to join us and help make a difference in the life of a veteran and an American hero, because this program truly is saving their life. I, I never say we save lives, but the veterans will tell you my service dog saved my life. It's incredible.
0: It is incredible, Shannon and beautiful. And, uh, I just love it. Let's talk a little bit. Some of the more business parts of it. Just. Cause that's what we need to do here. Um, Yeah. Well, first of all, what do you train the dog? How do you train the dog or what skills are you trying to get the dog to learn? Uh, You know, walk through a little bit of the training, please.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So we do train the dogs for five months. They live here on site. Um, And they train um, everywhere you can think to go. We go to the grocery store, the malls, airport security, public transportation, restaurants, everything. And we teach the dog in practical purposes how to navigate life effortlessly because... The worst thing that's happening to the service dog industry is all the fake service dogs out there because it puts a bad taste in everybody's mouth and it really confuses the community to what this you know, is really supposed to look like. So a true service dog should be, you don't even notice it. What's awesome is when we'll have 10 service dogs in a restaurant and when we all get up to leave and then people around us will be, they'll say, I didn't even know there was a dog here. That's how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to get in the way of the public or be a hindrance in any way to any establishment. It's They, they need to be bomb-proof, uh, respectful, obedient, and follow. But on the practical side of sim- how to mitigate symptoms of PTSD, our service dogs, they will alert on adrenaline during a panic, t- panic attack or a flashback. They wake our veterans up from nightmares. Our veterans learn to use them in public as a social barrier, as a grounding tool, because the service dogs are a tool. What does that mean? A barrier. It's a tool, a barrier. It means that when a a veteran—so crowds are one of the toughest things for a veteran. And so when they can place their dog either in front or on the side of them, it— helps keep people away. It keeps people a few, two or three feet more away than it would be if you had no barrier around them. Besides that, it's the feeling of safety and then the grounding technique at the same time. Because when the veterans start to feel themselves get spun up, they learn to breathe. They learn to touch the dog. They learn to feel the hair. They learn to get their brain out of the environment and being hypervigilant, which they all are, and they learn to focus instead of just walking through and letting it, walking through the mall and letting it all happen and letting their brain spin out. They lead their dog. They focus on their dog. We talk to them. This is all about leadership. Your dog is not going to follow. With you. And that's, and it's right in their wheelhouse. They learned how to be a leader in the military. And now it gives them, and the discipline of the handling gives them a, gives a veteran a job to be precise and to fall back on their training. They just have to learn how to lead a dog. And so they work as a social barrier. also. It was an incredible um, example. This last time we went to a mall with this just young female who was so brave and she struggled. It, nobody wants to go to Portland TSA. Nobody wants to ride the Max or like the subway or something like that. Nobody wants to do that. I don't anyway. And so we take the dogs there. And so that's particularly difficult for them. And she was trembling, scared. Almost in tears, but just facing her fear and doing it, and used this dog so beautifully. And at one point I told her, I said, "You know what? you're in a safe place here. You sit on the ground." and she brought this dog on her as for for uh, pressure therapy. To feel the weight of the dog and the warmth of the dog, which slows her heart rate, slows her breathing. I mean, it's when you look at the studies of it, it's an actual thing that happens in her body to help her ground herself, be more calm, center. And then she takes a few minutes and she can get up and do more. And it's, that's the tool that we're talking about. And so the pressure therapy is something that's very, very important. We have an amputee. We have some of our veterans that will use our dogs for balance. And mobility in that way. And so those are some of the main categories that our service dogs, you know, those are the uh, symptoms of PTSD that they will mitigate to help bring freedom and independence. Because the symptoms really don't ever go away, go away. We want them to lessen. We want them to significantly lessen. And one of the most powerful things is that, you know, our veterans are so heavily medicated through the VA often. And we had one veteran that had tw- was taking 23 medications a day. And he had tried every type of, of treatment that he could have access to through tremendous um, organizations. And when he came in and got our service dog, and she was a shelter dog, through within a year with the supervision of his doctor, he had gotten for, off of 23 medications down to one a day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, but that, that's what our dogs do. And that's it's, and every veteran is, you know, every veteran, when you listen to them tell their story, they're all the same, but they're all unique to themselves because they will use their dogs differently. Or one of these tasks that the dog will do ends up being way more significant based on what the veteran is particularly struggling with. And they will have, you know, certain, um, tasks that they'll go to more than others. But that's the, that's kind of the broad range that all of our service dogs will do. And part of it is trained. We teach the positions, we teach the dog, you know, how to be calm, how to lay on the lap. We, you know, we're in the middle of TSA and you got people everywhere and we have this dog laying on his side across this female's lap, just totally calm. I mean, that takes training, that takes discipline, that takes mindset for the dog. So we do all of that, but then we also rely on their instinct to, to smell and to be able to alert on the change of the adrenaline in the body and the chemical changes. And so our dogs will alert on adrenaline much like a diabetic alert dog will alert on high and low blood sugar, high and low blood sugar which changes this, the smell of the breath. That's what those dogs are actually alerting on for 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 a diabetic. And so the dogs are actually alerting on or a seizure detection dog. Well, our dogs are alerting on adrenaline. And so we also rely on the instinct. And if the dog wasn't calm in his brain, totally into his handler, following, intuitive, and for lack of a better way to put it, they just have this intimate bond and relationship where the dog is very focused on its handler that that allows all of the the calm mindset for the dog to be able to be calm enough, intuitive enough, paying attention enough to the nuances of handler to start to smell the chemical changes when the adrenaline is starting to go through the body. And some of the dogs will start learning on adrenaline during our, even within our five weeks of training. And then we'll all, sometimes we'll start to hear about it a lot afterwards.
0: Shannon, how can we help find out more? What's your website? All that.
2: Absolutely. Well, our website, at Northwest it's NorthwestBattleBuddies.org, and we need help. We are nationwide. We are represented right now in 23 states, and we need money. These dogs cost us $25,000, but they are 100% gifted to our American heroes, and we um, are, again, Jim, so grateful for a platform like this, but the the help of the American people. If you're local, people can do, across the nation, they can do third-party fundraisers, they can donate money, they can find ways to raise money, send it to us, and then in certain states, they can even help raise our puppies. You know, in our breeding program, we have puppy raisers. And before we get off, I want to make sure, do we have time for the quick 10?
0: Yes, but we do that separately, Shannon. So we're going to get off.
2: Oh, okay. Awesome.
0: Yep. Thank you so
2: much for being with us. All right. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful, wonderful day.
0: You as well. We are out of time, but that's right. We come back. Be safe, everyone. Bye now.